George A. Romero had repeatedly claimed that he had no conscious intention of making Night of the Living Dead into a socio-political allegory. He also said the same thing about Dawn of the Dead, but I'm convinced he was lying through his teeth on that one. <laughs> it's not difficult to believe that the character of Ben wasn't written with a black actor in mind. Uh, none of the other characters in the predominantly white cast reference Ben's race one way or the other, which is an unthinkable concept for rural America in 1968. Regardless, casting Dwayne Jones as Ben adds a racial subtext to Night of the Living Dead, whether that was deliberate or not. Black actors rarely played main protagonists in white-dominated films of this era. Many scenes with Ben seem to comment on the civil rights movement that was fraught with tension as filming was underway. The scene where Ben is executed by a gang of vigilante rednecks who mistake him for a zombie feel especially pointed once we figure out that Night of the Living Dead came out a couple of weeks after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Blackness in American horror will inevitably reflect a long history of white supremacy, sometimes implicitly but often explicitly. Horror is, at its core, a method in which people ruminate upon the things that scare them from the safe distance of fiction. The stratified hierarchy that dehumanizes black people in the United States is baked into the foundations of America, and as such, is an apt thematic tentpole for the horror genre to explore. Black filmmakers have commented upon it ever since they were able to get behind a camera. More often than not, however, the means of producing and distributing American films has been controlled by white interests. Because of this, their voices have been centered even on topics where another group's lived experience is central to the narrative, this podcast being an example. For this week's episode, we're talking about Candyman, a black horror movie starring a white woman and produced by a white creative team. Now, this is a complicated movie to talk about and unpack for a multitude of reasons, and I'm not necessarily the best qualified to do so, but we're, we're going to try to do the subject justice on this one. Yeah, we're going to point you in the direction of people who are more qualified than, than us. We tried our best to do our research. Yeah, as I've mentioned on this podcast once or twice before, uh, to quote Michael Harriet, the most aware, woke, educated white person you can approach on this subject learn most of what they got from listening to black people. Case in point, hopefully this is going to be the, uh, the good version of that. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one is Rachel. Back after a long absence. Yeah, this was my choice. Yeah, you were gone for the October season because you work in Salem Hall. Yeah, and then and then my job had to do a little bit of a, a move, but I, I am excited and have the energy to do this, especially with a movie that I think very fondly of. I love Candyman, and because Ryan and I are both very white, I wanted to talk about the issues in this movie with as much grace and sensitivity as possible. So I wanted to be at my 100% brain power for this. Why did you pick Candyman for this particular um, thing? It's one of my favorite horror movies. Um, I, I watch a lot of horror movies, but the list of ones that have given me actual nightmares after watching is actually pretty small. Candyman is one of them. I had a nightmare that the Candyman wasn't trying to kill me. He brought me along while he was killing people. And it was really freaky. So you were a Helen. Yeah, basically. I, I guess I was. I didn't think of it that way. I thought of it more like, you know, passively being the, you know, viewpoint in your dreams. 
All right, time for the plot recap. Yes. Uh, our central character is Helen Lyle, a semiotics grad student at the University of Illinois, Chicago. While she's doing research on urban legends, she learns of the Candyman, a vindictive spirit who kills anyone who speaks his name five times in front of a mirror. Uh, she then learns of a recent murder at the Cabrini-Green housing project and two dozen others that have been attributed by locals to the Candyman. Uh, skeptical of this, Helen and her friend Bernadette Walsh, who's also working on the thesis, uh, repeat the candy man's name to uh, Helen's bathroom mirror to no avail. <laughs> Bernadette won't go all the way. She'll only say it four times. I honestly, I have never tried to do any sort of like, you know, candy man, bloody Mary, Ouija board or anything. Like I am naturally, unfortunately, a very skeptical person, but I would never do anything, whether fictional or real, to try to invite anything in. Absolutely not. Oh, my siblings and I tempted fate like a motherfucker. Oh, no. We we did all that stuff. No, yeah, nope, nope, absolutely not. Anyways, Helen and Bernadette are working on a thesis about how uh, the Cabrini Green residents use the Candyman urban legend to cope with their hardship and inequality. They then visit the scene of the most recent murder. There, Helen discovers a room where offerings have been left for the Candyman. They're candy um, with razor blades inside. Afterwards, they interview the victim's neighbor, uh, Anne Marie McCoy, a single mother raising her infant son Anthony alone. Uh, Helen and her husband Trevor later have dinner with an expert on the Candyman legend who very smugly relates that Candyman was Daniel Robitaille, a African-American man born in the late 1800s as the son of a slave who grew up to become a well-known painter. After he fell in love with and impregnated a white woman, her father sent a lynch mob after him. The mob cut off his right hand and smeared him with honeycomb stolen from an apiary, attracting bees that stung him to death. Uh, his corpse was then burned in a pyre erected on the site where the Cabrini Green homes were eventually built. When Helen returns to Cabrini Green to follow up on her research, a young boy named Jake tells her of an incident where a developmentally disabled boy was violently castrated by the Candyman in a public bathroom. She goes in there to investigate and is ambushed by a man calling himself the Candyman who batters her with a hook. She survives the attack and identifies uh, her assailant to the police who recognize him as the head of a local gang and he is then charged with the murders attributed to the Candyman. Soon afterwards, the real Candyman appears to Helen in a parking garage, hypnotizing her. He explains that due to her discredit of his legend, he must shed innocent blood in order to revive and perpetuate it. Helen blacks out, and the movie then takes a hard left turn. She awakens in Anne-Marie's apartment, covered in blood, finding Anne-Marie's pet, a Rottweiler, decapitated, and her son, Anthony, missing. There's blood, like, all in his cot. I think that that is, like, one of the most disturbing scenes in the movie. Yeah, Anne-Marie pounces upon Ellen, demanding to know where uh, her baby is and Helen just attacks her with a meat cleaver the police then arrive and arrest Helen after Trevor bails her out of jail Helen finds the Candyman in a photograph she took at the Cabrini Green. He then breaks into Helen's apartment and cuts her neck, causing her to bleed and pass out. Uh, Bernadette arrives at the apartment with some flowers, and when Helen comes to, she sees that the Candyman has murdered Bernadette as well. Yeah, Bernadette sees Candyman. Well, sort of. We'll get to that. <laughs> uh, Helen is committed to a psychiatric hospital while being interviewed in preparation for a trial a month later, uh, although she has been high on Thorazine and unaware of how much time has passed, Helen attempts to prove her innocence by summoning the Candyman, who appears and murders her psychiatrist. Candyman then frees Helen from her restraints and allows her to escape through the window the Candyman just, like, flew out of. 
That is like a, the only like corny moment in the movie to me is when Candyman flies out the window. <laughs> Helen returns to her apartment to find Trevor now living with one of his students, Stacy. Yeah, the one she, she was suspicious of earlier. Yeah, Stacy was making goo goo eyes at Trevor and he was like, oh, there's nothing going on between us, honey. Yeah, and like their apartment was really cute and Stacy is painting the walls like Pepto-Bismol pink. She hates the color scheme. Yeah, <laughs> I love that little passive-aggressive moment. That was good. <laughs> uh, Helen confronts the two of them, scares Stacy half to death, and then flees to Cabrini Green in order to rescue Anthony. She's been receiving visions that the baby is in the uh, former apartment of the murder. Well, the one thing I noticed this time watching that one scene when um, Helen goes into the apartment and finds Stacy in there. Stacy is wearing her clothes. Stacy's wearing one of her shirts that she wore earlier. I'm like, wow, Trevor, how Ted Hughes of you. Once uh, she finds Candyman in his lair, he tells Helen that if she surrenders to him, Anthony's safety will be ensured. Uh, offering Helen immortality through folklore, the Candyman opens his coat, revealing a rib cage wreathed in bees. I think that is like one of like the scariest movie moments. On the official list, I know Candyman has one scene in there. That is one of the more iconic scenes in the film, based on what I can tell. The bees pour out of Candyman's mouth and stream down Helen's throat as he kisses her. He vanishes with Anthony, and Helen awakens to discover a mural of the Candyman and his lover, who uh, bears a striking resemblance to her. It was always you, Helen. The Candyman promises to release Anthony if Helen helps him strike fear into Cabrini Green's residence. Uh, attempting to feed his legend, the Candyman reneges and attempts to immolate both Helen and Anthony in a pyre. See, all the Cabrini Green residents notice there's some Candyman shit going on on this pyre that they're planning to uh, uh, burn as sort of like a local bonfire. Uh, Helen stabs the Candyman with a flaming plank at this point, with the fire destroying the Candyman. Helen dies while crawling away from the fire with Anthony. And it gives him back to Anne-Marie. Yeah, later on, at Helen's funeral, uh, Trevor and his new paramour are interrupted by Anne-Marie and other residents of the Cabrini Green, who pay their respects by dropping the Candyman hook onto her casket. At home, the grief-stricken and probably guilt-ridden Trevor looks into the mirror and says Helen's name five times, uh, whereupon Helen's vengeful spirit appears and kills him. Uh, a new mural of Helen dressed in white with her hair ablaze is then shown in the Candyman's lair, and that is the final shot of the film. What's the matter, Trevor? Scared of something? <laughs> I love the ending. Candyman is based on The Forbidden, a Clive Barker short story collected in the 1984-85 anthology Books of Blood. Have you read it? Yeah, I went through it. I, I haven't read it. The only Clive Barker that I've read is The Hellbound Heart, which I did really like. Anyways, this story takes place in Liverpool and centers on a university student looking into graffiti on a uh, low-income neighborhood that supposedly summons a supernatural menace a la Bloody Mary. Uh, the phantom killer in this story is something of an inversion of the film version. It is the personification of Pascal's wager, or Rocco's basilisk if you're an Elon Musk douchebag, Ugh. and therefore targets <laughs> people who are skeptical of its existence. 
When writer-director Bernard Rose got the film rights to The Forbidden, he was drawn to the story's subtextual themes around urban legends and how they're intertwined with class segregation. Because the movie was shifting its setting from the UK to the US, uh, he was drawn to using the Cabrini Green housing projects in Chicago as the formal setting of the film. And with that, I'll be going into a very brief history of the Cabrini Green, which I think is relevant. I think it was a good call, though, to move the location. Yeah, they were under the impression that uh, in order to have the movie make sense to an American audience, you're going to have to involve black people in it. That's the only stratified, classist system that most Americans would recognize on site. Yeah, I don't really think a lot of Americans understand how council housing works in the UK. Anyways, in the 1850s, the area on the low-lying Chicago River was the location of shantytowns where Swedish and Irish immigrants lived. It was nicknamed Little Hell due to a nearby gas refinery shooting fumes into the area. Jesus Christ. Uh, this was a sharp contrast to the nearby downtown area and the wealthy neighborhoods that bordered the district. As is pointed out in the Candyman film itself, people in the nice houses could open their windows and see the shitty houses. Yeah, and Helen's apartment is a nice nicer version exactly of the cabrini greenhouses they covered the you know cement blocks with plaster the hallways are you know white and not covered with graffiti and they're carpeted that's the thing they didn't do much which is something that's been pointed out to me like luxury apartment buildings and low-income housing are barely different from each other like they skim coated with plaster that they didn't plaster over the whole thing it doesn't require that much then um, something pointed out in the uh, histories of the Cabrini Green that I came across is that when the houses are numbered as uh, evidence in the film, it's spray paint with block lettering. <laughs> and at some point, one of the architects is like, hey, you know, it would be both longer lasting and less expensive if we just erected nice lettering on there, just, just screwed it in. Somebody's like, no, that's too nice looking. Jeez, that's so mean. That's so <laughs> cruel. America in a nutshell. Ugh. The first low-income housing project in the neighborhood was privately funded through charity in 1929, but development rose sharply after World War II. Francis Cabrini Homes, named after a nun who was the first American to be canonized by the Catholic Church, was completed in 1942. It was strictly regulated to have no more than a 25% black population. America. William Green Homes, named after the labor organizer, was completed in 1962. Uh, the Cabrini Green Homes were initially seen as well designed by the standards of low-income housing, but they were negligently run and the buildings were allowed to fall into disrepair. People who moved out were replaced with those who were even poorer. In 1966, the uh, Gatro et al. v. Chicago Housing Authority lawsuit is filed, alleging that Chicago's housing program was executed in a racially discriminatory manner that resulted in segregation. The CHA is found liable in 1969, and a consent decree with the HUD was entered into in 1981. In 1974, the sitcom Good Times begins its six-season run. It is set in the Cabrini-Green housing projects and depicts the buildings in its opening credits. At this point, Cabrini-Green is seen as a microcosm of urban decay and high crime in American public housing. Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne engages in a publicity stunt where she moves into Cabrini-Green to demonstrate that things are fine. Uh, she moves out after three weeks in 1981. That is like the most, like, I don't know, neoliberal nonsense I've heard <laughs> in a yeah, while. <laughs> yeah, in, in at least a week and a half at least. 
Uh, Burns administration doesn't address the issues with Cabrini Green by repairing the crumbling buildings or investing in lifting its residents out of poverty. In true Reagan-era fashion, she she consents upon a series of draconian police raids, each one costing taxpayers $500,000 a pop. People who commit homicides and people caught with a bag of weed are subject to the same levels of brutality. Cabrini Green was never the most violent neighborhood in America, despite its reputation. Uh, It was rarely in the top five in Chicago alone. But the fact that it was a few blocks away from rich white people made it pretty visible. Uh, Cabrini Green's homicide rate peaked in 1992, which was the year that Candyman came out. A group of Cabrini Green residents convinced the CHA to turn over administration and one of its row houses to them, since it was now being run by residents who were interested in the welfare of the neighborhood, conditions began to improve. Mayor Daly, however, credited his raids with both reducing crime and, for some reason, repairing the mechanical failures in the building. Yay! In the mid-90s, Chicago repealed a law that mandated that new public housing needed to be built every time an old building was torn down. Demolition and gentrification of Cabrini Green begins in earnest in 1995 and is accelerated in 1999. The last high-rise is demolished in 2011. The former site of Cabrini Green now contains luxury condos that are barely different from the original buildings and various shopping centers. Most of its former residents were priced out of the city, although a few of the Francis Cabrini homes still stand and remain habitable. Alright, for the production of the film, a source of inspiration for the movie was the murder of resident Ruthie Mae McCoy. She was killed by a home invader who slipped in through a hole behind the medicine cabinet. Yeah, that, they did not make that part up for the movie. Uh, Yeah, but that didn't happen in Cabrini Green. That happened in uh, the Abbott Homes project. Eddie Murphy was initially pursued to play the titular villain of Candyman. Okay, I, you know, it's like Eddie Murphy is a good performer, but I feel like he does not have the gravitas needed to be Candyman. Also, people would just see Candyman and be like, oh, it's Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> yeah, like, are we supposed to laugh at this? Like, Candyman, I argue, he's a tragic villain. You're supposed to feel sorry for him on a some level. Anyways, this is 1992, and while Eddie Murphy's peak as an actor was probably a few years beforehand. He was still too expensive to be in Candyman. (laughs) Tony Todd caught wind of the screenplay and began campaigning for the part. He saw Candyman as a romantic horror part like Phantom of the Opera, although he also compared Candyman to the Scarecrow, his favorite Batman villain. Tony Todd is great in this. Some of his facial expressions alone sell it. Once he secured the role, Todd supplied the character's tragic backstory himself. The whole thing about him being an artist who impregnated a white woman. Hey, you know what? That makes it even better. So, you know, he should really be slapping himself on the back. And also, he has presence. Like, Tony Todd is is a big guy. Alexandra Diggs, Rose's wife at the time, was set to play Helen uh, with their mutual friend Virginia Madsen cast as Bernie. However, Pig had to drop out when she got pregnant. Madsen was reluctant to take the Helen role because she's allergic to bee stings. Oh, yeah, I would be really freaked out by that. But she relented when tests showed that she was more allergic to wasps. (laughs) Rose also gave her detailed descriptions of the safety measures he planned to take during the shoot, and she was like, okay, I'll I'll, I'll try. (laughs) Had Madsen refused the part, Rose was planning to hire the then-completely-unknown Sandra Bullock. I think she would have been okay. I think Bullock is a better actress than most people give her credit for. 
Candyman spent three days in Cabrini Green with the rest of the shoot occurring on Hollywood sound stages. Uh, local gang members were given bit parts to ensure safety, and both Todd and Madsen had plainclothes police escorts the whole time. A production van did get hit with a stray bullet, however, on day three. Madsen claims to have been hypnotized and given a trigger word for her scenes with Todd. This started to creep her out, though, and she soon asked Rose to drop it. I mean, some of like this, this the scene like where um, she's listening to Purcell give the exposition of Candyman. Like it's just focused like on her face as she listens. You can kind of see like I don't know, like almost a hypnotic level to that. Also, when she's stripping her bloody clothes off after getting arrested, she asked the crew to hire a friend of hers to play the policewoman so she would feel a little less exposed while doing that scene. That's nice. Her name was Rusty Schwimmer, by the way. (laughs) To keep costs down, Rose pushed for practical effects instead of optical manipulation. Special effects manager Martin Bresson uh, employed the backdraft team to construct the bonfire scene, which used 1,500 gallons of propane and sent flames 30 feet into the air. Damn. I mean, I have to say, you know what? It's the, what do you call it? The Henson's Law. Practical effects always hold up. Yeah, even, even if you're bringing out ones. yeah, even if you're bringing out two gas cans and for that whole ass bonfire. <laughs> yeah, the bees are real. Yeah, the bees were supervised by Norman Gary, who'd previously worked on The Deadly Bees, My Girl, and Fried <laughs> Sorry, Tomatoes. I had to laugh. I'm like, oh god, the most infamous bee movie probably after Candyman is My Girl. Uh, he bred 200,000 bees, mostly using 12-hour-old bees in scenes since they uh, looked more mature to a layman but didn't have fully functioning stingers yet. That's a lot of bees. Crew members wore protective body suits regardless, and only one crew member got stung. Madsen was slathered with queen bee pheromones so the bees wouldn't see her as a threat. Uh, she did not expect the bees to be fuzzy and ticklish. <laughs> the bees were like, oh, this is a very, very large friend. Uh, she wore a mouthpiece for the uh, swarm attack and kissing sequence with Candyman. And Tony Todd also had like a specific mouth guard made for the scene where the bees were in his mouth. Yes, and uh, Madsen got out of that scene completely uninjured. <laughs> Todd arranged to get a $1,000 bonus per every bee sting that he got during the shoot. Smart he co- man. He collected $23,000. That's a nice chunk of change for a few bee stings. It took a half hour to get all of the bees into Todd's mouthpiece. Uh, he claimed to have been zoned out for most of it. Yeah, I think you just have, sometimes you just gotta like separate your mind from your body when you're doing something that, you know, intense and tricky too. But the fact that he really did have the bees in his mouth is worth, you know, much more than any sort of CGI bee pile that they could have done with him. Maybe not, you know, then, but certainly now. Yeah, Rosa convinced Philip Glass to compose Candyman's music by persuading him that the movie would be an atmospheric psychological horror movie in line with the writing of Edgar Allan Poe. You know, I, I will agree that Candyman is like the, could be considered like a predecessor to the, and I kind of hate this term, quote-unquote, elevated horror. You know, horror movies are in a bit of a, a renaissance right now with their style and content. And I think that Candyman is a very beautiful movie. You know, from the the acting, the soundtrack, the light. 
It's but. definitely not Einstein on the beach, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, I, and even then, I you can consider it like a slasher movie, but I feel like Candyman himself, speaking of Clive Barker creations, has more common with, like, Pinhead than, you know, Freddy Krueger. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced that Rose is being misleading here. Candyman has a great deal of tension and very little on-screen violence. I mean, when it does happen, when the violence does happen, it's like, ooh. Yeah, the only one kill scene is even remotely in line with what Michael Byers or Jason Voorhees gets up to. You know, you know when the psychiatrist gets hacked to death. Uh, still, Glass felt betrayed. He was under the impression that it was just a uh, corny routine slasher movie <laughs> and that this was uh, beneath him. Still... The score is very affecting, and it is filled with glassisms, uh, particularly on the choir parts. Yeah. You have that oscillating, repeating motifs over and over again, circling and swirling, and that minimalist effect. Yeah, um, Helen's theme and Cabrini Green are two of the best songs, on, are probably the best songs on the soundtrack. I've listened to them a few times. And as angry as Glass might have been, he did still score the second Candyman movie. Maybe he was contractually obligated. Maybe he was like, eh, I guess I can kind of sleepwalk through this one. Glass's opinion of Candyman seems to have softened a bit over the years, which may have been helped by the fact that its success means that uh, he's still getting residual checks for it decades later. And I was thinking, like, of Ray Parker Jr. I was like, yeah, he's still getting checks for Ghostbusters. <laughs> Alright, at this point, I think we could talk about the cast a little more. Uh, first, we have Virginia Madsen as Helen. I really like her in this role. I haven't really seen a lot of her other movies, but I think she has sort of an ethereal quality to her. Oh, yeah, she does carry this movie. She is the most important performance in it, and whether she's spacing out or screaming on the hospital bed or covered in blood or debasing herself under police interrogation, it, it all works. Yeah, I agree. Madsen had a long and successful career afterwards. She got an Oscar nomination in 2004 for her part in Sideways. Still, Candyman is the role that she's typically recognized for, especially by airport security. Apparently, <laughs> airport security all across America are super into Candyman. <laughs> That's so funny. And um, she's also the sister of uh, Mr. Blonde himself, Michael Madsen. Yeah, uh, Madsen has expressed that she's gratified that she's in one of those movies that people just watch as part of a seasonal tradition. Hey, being a scream queen is, is pretty cool. And next we have Tony Todd as Candyman or Daniel uh, Robotail. He's great. Yeah, Todd was cautioned to avoid the role for fear of being typecast, but uh, Todd loved the part and didn't care. I mean, I know he's in like some other horror movies. He's in Final Destination. Um, he's, also, he's got a cameo in Wishmaster. <laughs> I know he's also a theater actor. Um, this summer, my dad and my cousin were going to go see him in a production of August Wilson's Fences. Mm. But for whatever reason, I, he was no longer playing the part by the time their show date came up. Todd maintains every time he's asked that Candyman is his favorite part and he will play that character forever if he's asked to. All right, next we have Xander Berkeley as Trevor. He does a pretty good job as a slime ball. At first, he is a loving, supporting husband. Uh, he embraces her as she gets out of jail. And, uh, I mean, he does seem genuinely conflicted in the scene where Ghost Helen murders him. Yeah, I mean, but also, he was not asleep at home when she called him after she got arrested. I think he was definitely bonking that student beforehand. Maybe not bonking her, but definitely doing some inappropriate things. Mm -hmm. 
Then we have Vanessa Estelle Williams as Anne Marie McCoy. She is not that Vanessa Williams. She is a different one. <laughs> I really think she does a great job. I, I like that you can tell that she has like that, you know, that strength, but also all of that vulnerability. And she's not really in the movie that much, but she's very memorable. Yeah, she had a number of parts after this, most notably on the Soul Food TV series. Uh, she won a couple awards for that. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things where um, Candyman's on her resume, but it's the fourth or fifth thing. Speaking of which, Casey Lemons as Bernadette. She's better known as a director these days. Good uh, for her! Yeah, she did the uh, Harriet Tubman movie that Janelle Monet was in, and she directed the Whitney Houston biopic. Oh, I need to see that. I missed out on that. I thought it was weird that after Bernadette got hacked to death, they put all this blue makeup on her corpse face. Maybe she, maybe it's supposed to be like, look how much blood she lost, and maybe a certain amount of time went by. Yeah, she's there just to be the voice of reason that Helen does not listen to. No. Nervous studio executives had Rose consult with the NAACP. According to Rose, the people he spoke with thought it was silly for anyone to object to a black actor playing a horror movie villain. I mean, I think it's a good idea that he felt uh, sensitive enough to do that. Candyman got some criticism from black filmmakers. Director Carl Franklin felt that Candyman portrayed black people as overly superstitious, and he felt that the movie promoted a white savior narrative, also played into stereotypes of black men being predatory towards white women, and fetishized the concept of black people engaging in mass mournings and mass public shamings. Screenwriter Stephen Barnes, who teaches a class on black horror, cites two key interpretations of the scary black man trope in Candyman. One take is that the menace and violence is something innate in black people. The other take is that a history of oppression and degradation has driven the scary black man to what he is. Barnes then states that he identifies more with the latter take personally, but he acknowledges that both narratives are informed by a fear of the other that fuels white supremacy. It made me think of, there was an interview with the actress Carrie Washington after Django Unchained came out where somebody asked her, it's just like, how do you, and it's like, Broomhelda, she's just a damsel in distress. And she said, no, it's like, yeah, she is the damsel in distress, but a black woman isn't often given like the luxury of being the damsel in distress to be, you know, seen as worthy of protection and having her safety be a goal of the narrative. It's a very interesting interview. I suggest you check it out. Yeah, black men being innately violent is a form of racism that conservatives are traditionally receptive towards. Modern Republicans play off this by supporting police brutality, disenfranchisement of black people at the polls, and mass incarceration, you know, to keep things from spreading to real Americans, as they put it. Black men being driven to violence by oppression is more historically accurate, but it also forms a racism that's receptive to liberal white people in affluent communities. Modern Democrats will often give empty lip service to wanting to dismantle systemic racism, but they then seem to conclude that it's impossible to do anything more substantial than minor reforms and performative gestures. Uh, nothing else can be done, things are set just the way they are, and as our current president Biden just demonstrated, Democrats and Republicans both dump money into the police with raw abandon. Democrats are just as supportive of Cop City in Georgia as Republicans are. 
In fact, Joe Biden was the primary author of the Clinton-era crime bill that supercharged mass incarceration to begin with. Hillary Clinton coined the term super predators. Chicago is historically a Democratic enclave, but it has some of the worst segregation and income inequality of any major city in the United States. I mean, Republicans are very, very awful about this, but Democrats don't get a cookie for not saying the quiet bit out loud as often. Both parties support hegemony, and every meaningful bit of progress originated outside of mainstream politics. Democrats didn't adopt them until they became popular to the point where it became political suicide to avoid the matter entirely. It's just one of those things where you've got to force people in power to do the right thing. It's like, how many times must we teach you this lesson, old man? A novelist historian, Tananarive Du, says that she is a fan of Candyman, but she does take issue with the film telling a black story through a white protagonist and having a mostly white creative team. Du believes that the residents of the Cabrini Green row houses are dehumanized in a story that centers upon a white woman leaving her comfortable bubble in order to go on a black poverty safari. In this way, Candyman isn't too different from suburban slashers like Halloween or A Nightmare on Elm Street, stories where the safe, secure, sanitized, and segregated enclosures of small-town America are invaded by degenerate outsiders. It's just that, in this case, the innocent white lady is courting fate by venturing into the den of evil that lies away from where the decent people live. That being said, contemporary reviews for Candyman were quite positive by slasher movie standards. Uh, <laughs> praise was given to the eerie atmosphere, interesting premise, and Todd's performance. He just whispers everything with a seductive menace. I know, he has such a nice voice. And they give him like this gore-dripping hook. They always light him in a way that makes him look creepy, but they can't overlook the fact that he's a very tall, handsome man. I know, I'm like, Tony Todd is very handsome. And I I have read some of Tana Reeve Dew's short fiction. He's very good. Check it out. Candyman had a budget of $9 million. Like most slasher movies, it was made very cheaply. And it made $25.8 million at the box office. That's and a pretty did, good return. Yeah, it did very well both on home video and through cable TV broadcasts. There was always a channel playing this on Halloween I'm throughout the pretty, 90s. I am pretty sure that a girl I went to elementary school with watched Candyman and was describing parts of it to me. And I was like... Ah, like especially the part where he opens his jacket and exposes his beehive rib cage. Yeah, Madsen won a Saturn and a Fangoria Chainsaw Award for her performance. The Avoria's Fantastic Film Festival awarded prizes to Madsen and Philip Glass for his score. Candyman also got the festival's audience award. What, no love for Tony Todd, I the title not. character? I guess not. That's too bad. Candyman got two sequels. The third one was direct-to-video. I have not seen any of them. I probably should, but... They don't have great reputations. Nah. Uh, Todd and Glass returned for 1995's Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh. Which uh, is a great subtitle. Todd was the only familiar face in 1999's Candyman 3, Day of the Dead. Fourth film, which was to be set during a New England blizzard, was canceled. There were several failed attempts to reboot the franchise between 1999 and 2021. A prequel focusing on Candyman's doomed love story with Helen, you know, in the 1890s, was shopped around by Rose with no takers. And that would have been interesting, but I do think that especially that one, you would want a mostly black creative team, especially some, you know, proper historians. Following the success of Freddy vs. Jason, a crossover with the Leprechaun franchise was proposed. Uh, I'm sorry, Candyman is too suave for that. 
And also, <laughs> while I do think that some of the Leprechaun movies are fun, they're definitely going for a different thing than Candyman. I guess if you, I, I don't know what, I'd say Candyman crossover with Pinhead. We'll call it the Barkerverse. Todd refused to have anything to do with a Candyman Leprechaun movie. Smart and man. The project seemed fizzled <laughs> out. <laughs> Uh, the series lay completely dormant until Candyman 2021. Did you see it? Uh, no, I haven't gone. Okay, to I it have yet. seen it. Uh, it was co-written and produced by Jordan Peele and co-written and directed by Nia DaCosta. Uh, DaCosta is probably known at this moment of recording for directing the Marvels. This reboot of Candyman focuses on a bougie black visual artist who's struggling to follow up his splashy debut in the fine arts world. He becomes engrossed by the Candyman legend and becomes further entranced when he convinces himself that he was the baby abducted in the 1992 movie. He is supposed to be the baby. Like, Vanessa E. Williams has a brief cameo as an older Anne-Marie. Scene that is far too short, in my opinion. Madsen and Todd both appear as their respective characters. You only hear her voice, and Tony Todd is only a bad CGI recreation. I, contra spicy take, I didn't actually really like the Candyman reboot sequel. I thought it just didn't really have what I liked about the first one, sort of like that tension and intrigue. The trailers pretty much showed all of the interesting scenes, and a lot of it was just like, Candyman shows up, Candyman kills somebody, the end. I've heard good things and bad things. Sophie from Mars has a very deep dive into this uh, Candyman reboot. I'll have to check that out. Uh, anyways, this version of Candyman reinforces fan theories that Helen was either possessed by Candyman or was hallucinating Candyman while carrying out the crimes that she attributes to him. Nobody in the 1992 film sees Candyman except Helen and the people who are murdered by him. Candyman doesn't even make audible footsteps while he walks. I think that's such a cool detail. I mean, uh, back to like the reboot Candyman, I did like Yaha Dulmatin II's um, performance. Like, he is also another very beautiful handsome man that we get to watch you know suffer horribly and there's a scene where he sees Candyman in the mirror which is probably the scariest and like tensest moment in the movie and I just felt like it ended far too soon and I believe that Tony Todd deserves more than just being a bad CGI face. <laughs> Yeah, this Candyman reboot had a $25 million budget and made $77.4 in returns. And with that out of the way, that brings me to themes. Ooh, yeah, we got a lot of themes to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I already touched upon most of the racial subtext throughout the talk, and that's mostly what I'm comfortable with, repeating black intellectuals and academics who examined the film and also applied their own lived experience to it, as well as black filmmakers is the same deal. I should probably also mention that Reginald Hudlin commented on the film briefly. He didn't seem to think much of Candyman, but he, he didn't want to say anything too disparaging because he, he was friends with some of the people involved in the film and well you know he's a Chicago-based filmmaker. The video that we've talked about with Tanana Redu and Stephen Barnes they are married. It's very interesting they go in through like the depiction of black men in horror movies who are not the bad guy you know the, the terrible trope of the black dude dies first and they're both of their fondness for Candyman and then you know what they hope next for black horror and there is also a really good documentary on Shutter Call called Horror Noir, 
that is worth a watch. Yeah, the theme that I wrote down for this is semiotics, which uh, I do think is an important element of the film. It's also one that's very difficult for non-academics to talk about, so I'll do the best I can here. Sign signifier. <laughs> yeah, it's the study of sign processes and the ways that humans form meaning. This field is much broader than deconstructing folk tales and urban legends. Uh, it often delves into the sociological and anthropological roots of not only linguistics, but also analogy, allegory, symbolism, metaphor, and signification. Helen is engaging in semiotics through her academic study in the film. I mentioned that as her field in the recap. We are arguably doing the same thing with this podcast, although much more informally. Semiotics encompasses how and why we dream, how we respond to music, or why certain manga volumes hit harder than others. Uh, a good question about Candyman is why the movie's villain is so interested in Helen out of everyone, why he chooses her. Well, it kind of implies that she's like the reincarnation of his lost love. Yeah, I mean, you can read it that way. My read is that after Helen was chosen, then the mythological folkloric white woman that the Candyman impregnated in 1890 was revised to resemble Helen. Interesting. I know that there was a scene, a couple moments between Helen and Candyman were cut because of the whole like, well, we can't have a black man romancing a white woman in a movie, which I know that Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen was disappointed that that happened. Like there's this, I think the, their kiss was longer and maybe shot in a different way. And there's, I think Helen confesses her love to the candy man and editors were like, nope, nope. Thank you, censorship. Yeah, I, I'm sure those were cut for reasons that are more loaded, but also I'm sure a lot was cut for time because Candyman goes fast and hard. This movie's 102 minutes long. Yeah, literally at the halfway point is when it just suddenly makes that big left turn and then it just doesn't stop until the end. Yeah, it's actually a fairly slow burn until Helen wakes up covered in blood in the apartment with the missing baby. At that point, then things just start hitting you. I feel like a lot of good horror movies need that setup because you have to supply a baseline of normal before all the fucked up shit happens. And then you're like, well, things were fine before. And then watching that, you know, sense of peace get gradually shattered is always good. But yeah, chanting the Candyman's name isn't really all that consequential, even in the text of the film. It's not nearly as open and shut as, say, solving the puzzle box in Hellraiser. Candyman happily kills Bernie, even though she only says the name four times. And aside from the theory that Helen is a delusional white savior wannabe who kidnaps the baby and kills all the people on her own, another popular fan theory about Candyman's motives lies in semiotics. Candyman's power lies in the belief that people have in him. He's a Freddy Krueger or a Pennywise, a Pascal's Wager or a Rocco's Basilisk. In this context, Helen is a threat to the Candyman because she is an academic who is actively trying to demystify him. I wanted to bring up the Slenderman stabbing because I thought that there was, you know, a level of connection there. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, Slenderman was, I mean, he is, but he does not have the power, uh, so to speak, anymore. Slenderman is like an internet creepypasta character. You know, he's a tall, really skinny, you know, blank-faced guy in a suit who steals and eats children. I'm greatly summarizing. He has a whole lore. Look it up. About 12 years ago, a pair of preteen girls got who, one of whom had severe, untreated childhood schizophrenia 
stabbed their, a third girl, their friend Peyton, thinking that they were going to, you know, sacrifice her to the Slender Man and that they would walk to a certain part of Wisconsin and join him in his palace. Peyton, the girl who was stabbed, miraculously survived. The knife just missed. Um, a vital artery and she crawled to safety where I think a bicyclist or a jogger found her. There's a very good um, documentary called Beware the Slender Man and there's a Northern Irish YouTuber that Brian and I both like who had a video Brian Hollinger about the Slender Man I think that that was taken down probably because you know it is a very distressing topic you know the idea of two children trying to kill another one to appease a pretend character. Uh, you know part of Slender Man's appearance was that he was you know he's an alternate reality game he's he's meant to look real like there's real quote-unquote documents real photos real footage of him you know especially if you um have in a mental illness where it is very hard for you to differentiate between imagination and reality but after the stabbing slender man he's not the same anymore i feel like he kind of got replaced in that you know tween horror for of like you know analog horror and maybe like five nights at freddy's as to what kids are obsessed with but i remember like being in middle school and like watching marble hornets which was a video series about slender man like that was like a real like big deal like people were obsessed with slender man was everywhere and once the stabbing happened with real consequences he has disappeared yeah creepypasta is its own thing that i don't really know too much about but yeah, one other thing is that I, I kept going over and over again, people throwing out the fan theory that uh, there is no supernatural occurrences in the Candyman universe, and it's just Helen is hallucinating everything, which I think mostly holds up, aside from the bit where ghost Helen stabs Trevor to death at the end of the movie. <laughs> personally think the idea that there is a candy man and that he is there because he does not want his power to disappear because he has been demystified i mean i do like that they kind of keep it ambiguous and i like a movie where you know it challenges you to think and you get to decide what your interpretation is but i lean towards there being a candy man causing all of the problems because ellen decided to stick her nose where it didn't belong all right, well, that's everything I wrote down about Candyman. Uh, do you have any other remarks that you'd like to um, make? I was going to talk about how Helen is a great example of the white lady who doesn't know how to stay in her lane. You know, there's sort of like that, the trend, at least awareness now of like white women who want to speak up on social issues. Like there's like a new, hopefully a new set of etiquette to follow. It's like you're not supposed to really speak on issues or insert yourself into situations that you are not part of the group on being affected but that doesn't mean not to care about it but you have to go about it is that you are lifting up people who are affected by it listening to them i heard like a really good quote about allyship is that being a true ally means is that you're also getting hit by the stones when they are being thrown and i think unlike other like white savior characters helen pays the ultimate price for her mistake her just she is kind of really dismissive of the people she is trying she is trying to help and i don't think that she did it out of any sense of malice maybe a little bit of intellectual superiority but she does like atone for her mistakes by sacrificing herself 
to save Anthony. And I still think that she would have done that and sacrificed herself, even if she didn't have anything to go home to. We just needed to have Trevor suck so she could come back as a ghost lady. <laughs> when Bernadette is at the door, Helen doesn't say, Bernie, help me. She says, Bernie, run. He's here. So she's learning to a point, and she is putting honor before self in a couple of scenes. I mean, the, the, the whole thing with the allyship, as it was explained to me, and maybe in some tiny minor part in this very podcast, it's something I've, co- I've come upon beforehand, is that I'm not the, supposed to speak over the people who have the lived experience but I am a white dude and there are going to be people who are more willing to listen to me than to listen to them and that's essentially what my role is if I have a role. Yeah to speak up when you see something going wrong but not to like I don't know lead the crusade. You're supposed to sort of you know help it along. Yeah we mentioned some names over this recording and yeah if you haven't uh, looked into what they had to say it's definitely worth looking into if you're curious like that was like the biggest reason why i was so hesitant to talk about Candyman. more so because i love the movie and i want to do it justice was because i look i'm a white lady like i don't want to like go about this the wrong way you know i want to give it the respect it deserves because you can't talk about Candyman without talking about the racial issues here Yeah, and uh, I I am cognizant enough to know that uh, lots of white people with good intentions have uh, not done a great job before. Yeah, it's like we're, we're, we're trying our best. And, you know, and if we've made a mistake, you know, please let us know. Well, you know, we took this very seriously. Like, Ryan found a lot of research. We watched a lot of movies, lots of, a lot of documentaries, read some reviews. But, you know, we can't do everything. We just have to give our best. We're trying. We're trying. <laughs> right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next time. Bye. Hello, this is Ryan in the editing room with an addendum. I felt compelled to expand upon an important point that Barnes made that, in retrospect, I feel that I failed to properly convey. Specifically, the point that Barnes made about preferring the narrative of black men being compelled to violence through desperation. What he pointed out that I did not reflect to my regret was that, despite what white supremacists routinely claim, the principal motivation for violent crime isn't race, it's the desperation that arises from poverty. All available stats constantly reaffirm that stop and frisk, broken window policies, and giving tanks to the Boise Police Department do not reduce crime in any meaningful, measurable way. The police, after all, in the best case scenario, respond to crime after it happens. Usually they just harass people. But as I already mentioned, decades of police raids in the Cabrini-Green did not improve conditions there one iota. Uh, The peak of violent crime was in 1992, well after the raids were a common practice. What improved the Cabrini-Green was when the residents themselves took control of the row houses and began fixing the material conditions of the environment. Of course, this progress became moot when the city knocked over the buildings and priced the residents out of the neighborhood. Neoliberalism doesn't fix issues so much as it exports them. A sort of mentality of, I got mine and uh, not my problem anymore. So anyways, with that in mind, I think that provides necessary context to the dialogue I had with Rachel earlier.